the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Today <coughs> is the fourth Sunday of the Coptic month of Aviv, and the gospel today about the raising of Lazarus is a very important gospel reading as it relates to the disciples and their uh, growing in discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course it is one of the very important gospels for um, each one of us in, in also uh, understanding some aspects about discipleship and what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I want to reflect on just uh, a few points this morning about the gospel of the raising of Lazarus. The first one is about Jesus's friendship, the friendship of the Lord Jesus Christ to Lazarus and to Mary and Martha. The second one is about Jesus's silence and his delay. The third one is his response and the fourth one is his tears. The first point is that <clears throat> we see in the gospel today a certain um, intimate friendship that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. I remember a, um, a beautiful documentary that was done in French, it had English subtitles. <coughs> about the monastery of St. Macarius in Egypt. It was done maybe over 10, 15 years ago. And at the end of the, um, the documentary, uh, they went out into the desert to meet one of the hermits who's still alive in the monastery of St. Macarius. His name is Father Mina, Father Mina Abu Namin al-Ma'eri. He's probably now close to 100 years old and he's probably been living as a hermit for 50, 60 years at least. Um, and the, the interviewer, the French interviewer, uh, was asking Father Mina, this elderly hunched over hermit, what did you gain? What did you gain in terms of experience in all of these years in being in the desert, alone, by yourself in this vast, deserted area? And I want to quote to you his exact words. He, he thought for a moment, then he smiled, and he said, I experienced a personal friendship and intimacy with the person of the Lord Jesus. And then he went on to say, the inner feeling is very real, a very intimate life in which the Lord says to you, I am with you. So his experience of, of being in the desert for 50, 60 years was this growing friendship, intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ, a very real, concrete experience that the Lord is constantly saying to him, I am with you. So. The, the theme of friendship is one that perhaps we don't speak much about um, as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. We often speak about him as savior um, and so on. But uh, the Lord himself, when he spoke to his disciples about love, he said, no greater love has this than one to lay down his life for, for his friends. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. And in the gospel today, they said um, about Lazarus, Jesus said to his disciples, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And earlier when they came to him, to tell him that Lazarus was sick. The, the translation that we read this morning says, 
the one whom you love is sick. But other translations more literally will say, the friend whom you love is sick. The friend whom you love is sick. So it was very clear, it's very clear in the gospel that there is a, a, a friendship between the Lord Jesus and Lazarus, along with his sisters Mary and Martha. And one of the, the, the beautiful things that we need to constantly reflect on in our prayer life is this friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ loved his disciples as friends. They could speak to him openly about their joys when they came back from their, their mission trips and they shared with him full of joy that even the demons are subject to us in your name. He listened to them smiling. He was happy for them. And they also could speak to, the, to him about their sorrows and their difficulties, their, their doubts. And Jesus was the perfect friend They, they grew in that intimacy of, of confidence. And it's very beautiful that even Judas, who at the very last moment when he came with those who were um, coming to arrest the Lord Jesus on, on Holy Thursday, that when Judas went to embrace and kiss the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? As if to remind him of who I am to you and who you are to me. And even at this very moment as you betray me, you are my friend and I am your friend, if you will accept it. The, the book of Sirach, that beautiful book of wisdom, says, a faithful friend is a sturdy shelter. He that has found one has found a treasure. There is nothing so precious as a faithful friend and no scales can measure his excellence. So Christ is not only the perfect expression of God, he's not only the perfect expression of man as human, but he's also the perfect expression of friendship. And so for us too, Christ is our friend. He is always ready to receive us and to console us. St. Augustine, he says that these women said only, Lord, behold, the friend whom you love is sick as if to say, it is enough that you know, for you are not one that loves and then abandons. So St. Augustine said, they just had to remind him that the one whom you love, your friend whom you love is sick. And they knew that he would take care of the rest because they knew that in his love for Lazarus, he would not abandon him. So we must have this experience of Christ as Lord, as Pantocrator, as Master, as Savior, as Redeemer, but also as brother, as spouse, and as friend. He somehow mystically and beautifully fulfills all of these. And in the Gospels, he gives us many opportunities to, to witness him as a spouse, to witness him as a brother, to witness him as a friend. And he wants us to approach him with all of these sentiments that we would approach a spouse, a brother, a friend, a Lord, a master, a savior, a redeemer, and so on. Again, one of the fourth century bishops, uh, he said, Lord, the friend whom you love is sick. By these words, they appeal to his affection. They lay claim to his friendship. They call on his love, urging their familiar relationship with him 
to persuade him to relieve their distress. I wonder if we can take a simple um, verse from the gospel this morning as part of our prayer. We say to the Lord, for example, Lord Jesus, the friend whom you love, me, the friend whom you love is sick. Lord Jesus Christ, the friend whom you love is in distress. Lord Jesus, the friend whom you love needs your grace, and so on. Speak to him as a friend. Call upon him with boldness as a friend. If I might say, we might even demand from him the benefits of friendship. I think he will be very pleased if we approach him in such a way. The second point that we see in the gospel is Jesus' silence and his delay in coming to his friend. There's a lot of confusion that takes place. He's sick. The sickness is not unto death, but he dies, but he's not going to die for more than four days or be dead for more than four days and he's going to rise. So there's, there's a lot of tactical measuring that Christ is doing with his disciples and with, of course, all of the witnesses there at the tomb for a purpose, for a reason. And his silence and his delay is always for a reason, for the benefit of the one to whom he is delaying his coming. And same, the same, of course, is for us, that Jesus' silence and delay in our life is for a reason. And even St. Paul today, in his epistle, he says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's as if he's saying, you know, one of the great benefits that you have as a friend of the Lord Jesus is not only that you believe in him, but one of the added benefits that you have of being a friend of Jesus is that you get to suffer for him. And he wants us to sort of embrace this idea that to be a friend of Christ means that we are privileged to suffer with him. St. John Chrysostom, he says, many are offended when they see any of those who are pleasing to God suffering anything terrible. There are those, for instance, who have fallen ill or have become impoverished or have endured some other tragedy. Those who are offended by this do not know that those who are especially dear to God have it as their lot to endure such things, as we see in the case of Lazarus, who was also one of the friends of Christ, but was also sick. So he's saying that it is an especial sort of benefit, grace, that's given to those who are close to God to suffer with him and for his sake. I, rem I, I mentioned the story maybe a couple of years ago, a short, funny story of a, um, a Spanish mystic um, saint. Her name is Teresa of Avila. And um, she was quite the personality. And at uh, one point in her life, she was going about doing God's work, establishing convents and, and uh, opening uh, um, convents for hundreds of nuns. And she was the spiritual mother to all of these nuns. And she was facing trial and difficulty and obstacle after obstacle. And then finally sort of exasperated, she kind of cries out and says, Oh my Lord, when will you cease from scattering obstacles in our path? And the Lord answered her saying, Do not complain, daughter, for this is how I treat my friends. And then she responded immediately saying, Ah, oh Lord, it is on account of that that you have so few. So only someone with that kind of boldness could speak to the Lord in such a way. But it's a beautiful sort of inter interaction 
in which the Lord confirms that these troubles that you find in your path, these obstacles, are especially for my friends. And she retorts, of course, saying, it's on account of this, O Lord, that you have so few friends. But hopefully we count ourselves among those few friends. Jesus, again, in the gospel today, he chose not to heal the sick Lazarus, but he chose rather to raise the dead Lazarus. You should think about that for a moment. He chose not to heal the sick Lazarus, but he preferred to raise the dead Lazarus. Apply that in your own life. When, when, you, when you feel the, the sort of silence of God or the delay of God coming, ask yourself if he is choosing to do something greater than the lesser thing that is immediate. The greater some is often not the most imminent, the most um, close to us. The greater is not necessarily even the most desired in the, in the, in the, in the long run, in the, in the greater sort of scheme of things. And certainly the, the greater may not be the most logical to us. Nonetheless, again, we see in the gospel today, God's ways are not our ways. For the people who were there, and including Mary and Martha, they simply wanted the Lord to heal their sick brother. And Jesus chose not to heal their sick brother. He chose to wait for the brother to physically die and remain in the tomb for four days. So there's, there's a, 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 you know, when Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death, it's sort of a strange thing to say because Lazarus does die. And so he's saying to us something very beautiful. He's saying, even though in your eyes you will see him dead, you will see him placed in the tomb, and you will wait for four days to, before the miracle happens, but it's not death. It seems like death, but it's not death. It's not the perspective that we think. Oftentimes, when death comes our way, whatever that death is, whatever that destruction is, whatever that suffering is, whatever that trial is, it's not what it seems the Lord is saying to us. It's not unto death. It's not unto your destruction. It's not unto your failure. It's not unto your, um, your hopelessness and despair. But it is for the glory of God if you wait, if you're patient. So this is Jesus' silence and delay. What about his response? The, the response of Jesus is similar to another incident that we read about in the Gospels, one of those beautiful accounts in the Gospels of the um, the disciples who are sent into a storm. They, they are, after the, the, the miracle of the uh, reading of, of, of the, the, multi the feeding of the multitude, which we read about last week, Jesus sends his disciples into the boat to go to the other side of the lake where he then dis disperses the people, dismisses the people, and then he goes up into the mountain to pray alone, and he tarries there up in the mountain while the disciples are caught in this terrible storm. And they're in this storm all night. And Jesus finally comes to them, the Bible says, in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. That means all night they were struggling in the storm. And he comes to them walking on the water. But it's interesting because the Greek word that's tr translated when it says that the disciples were tossed about by the waves. They were tossed about. The Greek actually more literally means they were harassed or tortured by the waves. They were, they were really in a, in a difficult storm. It wasn't just a, a bit bumpy like when we go out on a fishing trip, but it was, it was as if they were being tortured in this situation. 
and imagine that when they were dis dismissed in the evening, it was, it was late in the evening, and so from now from late in the evening until sometime bet between 3 and 6 a.m., they're being tortured. How often it seems like we're in this torture. And when Jesus comes to them, of course, again, there's, there's like Lazarus, there's, a, it, there's a clearly a point that the Lord wants to make. Why is he delaying? Is he not aware as he's praying in the mountain that his disciples are being harassed by the storm? Of course he is. As a matter of fact, he clearly put them in this situation. He chose not to be with them in this situation. There was another time where he was with them in a similar situation. He was asleep in the boat. And when they awakened him in the, in the storm, he immediately caused the storm to cease. But this time it's different. This time he waits, he delays. And even when he comes, there's something interesting. They see the Lord, they recognize him, but the storm doesn't stop. Unlike the first time when they awakened him and then the storm ceased. This time he comes to them, they see him, they identify him, and yet the storm still rages on. As if he's sort of taking the experience that they had with him in the boat when he was asleep in the boat to the next level, to the next sort of um, educational journey in their spiritual life. One of the spiritual fathers said it this way, and then maybe we can uh, break it down a little. He says, it is crucial that the disciples now derive trust and strength from the very place that a moment ago was to them a source of keenest fear. For this is the chief feature of the Paschal mystery, that new life should emanate from the place of death in a pattern that would repeat itself at Calvary. They do not want to look for their Lord in the place of fear. Thus, Jesus must shatter the submarine monster of fear from within once and for all. What he's saying here is that a moment ago they were harassed in this storm and they were immersed in this fear. And rather than understanding that Jesus will simply come and remove the fear and everything will be okay, he says to them, you must recognize me, what, in the midst of the fear. You have to see both together. You have to see me standing in front of you, aware that I am the Lord and capable of causing the storm to cease by my word, and yet the storm rages on. And, and this is the point of the gospel this morning, too. Even when Peter, even when Peter says, Lord, say to me to come to you so that I can, I can walk on the water like you, Jesus says, come. Perhaps Peter thought that when he came on the water, then the storm would cease. But it didn't. Again, the Lord is saying, there are two realities here. There is death and there is life. They both are staring you in the face. Which one are you embracing? Which one are you embracing? At this very moment, you are about to sink. The storm is raging on. It is not lessened by my presence. And yet I am life standing in front of you. Let me give you another example from the coronavirus, but don't take this as a, I'm not saying, I'm not making a political statement, please. When we, when we ask questions about the chalice, when we ask questions about whether we can get sick from the, from the spoon of the chalice and whether we can get sick from um, you know, the body and the blood of Christ, can it transmit disease? I'm not going to answer this question. I don't even think it's the right question to, to ask. I think the question is rather, 
when we come to the church and you stand in the church and death is around you, at this very moment, death is around us. Suppose the coronavirus is facing you in, in the face right now. Suppose the coronavirus is surrounding the, every, every object of the church. Suppose it's, suppose it's on the spoon. Okay. But what else is present? Life. Life. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to take away the coronavirus. I'm not going to take away your fear of the coronavirus. But I'm going to tell you that I'm life. I am the resurrection and the life. At this moment, not, not in the future, not after the storm ceases, not after the disease is gone, but now there is life in the chalice. There is life on the patent. Which one are you focused on? Which one are you embracing? Which one is, 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 is capturing your heart? You cannot resolve all of the fears by, by, by wishing them away, nor by demanding that God is going to ask or is going to come and remove all of the problems of the world. I think perhaps, this is just my very humble opinion, this might be one of the lessons that God has allowed us to experience during this whole pandemic. He's exactly like in Lazarus today, exactly like in the storm. There is death in the tomb. It stinks. You can smell it. The body is decaying. It's real. It's not fake. He's not glowing in the tomb right now. But at the same moment as life, which one will be victorious? Which one will overcome? So he says again to Martha, he says, or Martha, yeah, Jesus says to, said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, so Martha's thinking what? Yes, I know that we, we will experience death now and then hopefully someday he will rise again. Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. I am the resurrection and the life. Look at me. Look at me now. Before I even raise him, before you see him coming out of the tomb and we unbind him, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. It's what he said to the Samaritan woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is asking you to give you a, to give you a drink, to give me a drink, right? If you, if, you, if you knew who it was who was in front of you, you would understand that there's something bigger than what you're seeing, something more important, something more life-changing, really something a matter of life and death. He's saying to her and he's saying to us, recognize me and my power at this moment in the midst of in the Samaritan woman, in the midst of all of your misery and the five husbands and, and, and your rejection by all the people and everything that you're facing at this moment at, in the heat of the sun at the well. You can focus on that if you want. Or you can look at, look at me, the gift of God who is standing in front of you. The last point is Jesus' tears. One of the most beautiful verses of the gospel today is the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. We can meditate on those two words for the rest of our lives. Jesus wept. Again, one of the 4th century um, Bishops, his name is Potamius, he says, God wept, moved by the tears of mortals. God wept in order that God might do with the tears and compassion what humans do on behalf of their fellow human beings. So Christ shows us in his tears that God weeps. In the face of our trials and uh, in the face of being tortured in this life, in the face of our suffering, 
God is not just aloof. He's not simply saying, suck it up. He is weeping with us because he knows that on the one hand, we created this problem, we continue to create this problem of suffering in the world, and he respects our freedom. And in that freedom, again, he is also in pain. He is also weeping at the, at the sight of his creation, he who is in his image and likeness, decaying in a tomb. The smell of rotten flesh should never have been a part of our experience. It should never happen. And Jesus weeps because he knows that this is, this is not what he created us to be. I, I want to just end sort of with a meditation on something in the life of Job. The great story of Job in the Old Testament. Um, we know that Satan came and got permission from God to test Job. And in that test, he, he, he sort of wreaked havoc on, on Job and took away almost everything that was precious to him. And he gave him sores and boils all over his body and really brought him to utter destruction and despair. So in the beginning of the story, the wife of Job says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, the Bible says, Job did not sin in what he said. Think about that. Okay, so, so Job said something very beautiful. He said, shall we not take both the good and the bad from God? And the Bible says he did not sin in what he said. Immediately after that, his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to console their friend Job. And the Bible says that when they came and they saw him from a distance, they, they cried. Just from seeing their friend in that condition, it says when, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their clothes and sprinkled dust on their heads. That's how bad he looked from a distance, let alone when they got closer to him. Okay, so then what happens when his, their friends come? The situation was so serious that the Bible says they sat on the ground with him and for seven days and seven nights no one said a word to him because of the great amount of suffering that he was in. So first he said to his wife, shall we not accept the good and the bad? And the Bible says he didn't sin in what he said. And then for seven days he just remained silent. What was the first thing he uttered after that silence? You might actually find it humorous. The Bible says that after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Cursed the day of his birth. So after what he said to his wife, and after sitting in silence for seven days, the first thought that came to him, and the first thing he said was, I cursed the day that I was born. But the Bible said that he didn't sin. So what's happening here? What's, why would he curse the day that he was born? Now, of course, on the one hand, we, we don't want to dismiss that Job is in, in, in an intense suffering, the likes of which, God forbid, any of us would ever approach a percentage of. And so, like Christ on the cross, who represents humanity and, and its utmost suffering, he also cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in a sense, his cry is a cry of, 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 of 
of despair, a cry of, of darkness that's, that he's experiencing from the depths of his being. But something else might be um, something for us to think about as it relates to the tears of Christ. Elder Paisios, he, has, he said something very beautiful. He said, although God sees so much suffering upon the earth, even things which we cannot imagine, he never falters. You have suffered more, he asks. I will provide you mo with more in the other life. And he rejoices. Otherwise, how could he endure so much injustice, so much evil that exists? But he keeps in mind the reward of those who suffer and in a manner of speaking endures that great pain. So what Elder Paisius is saying is that because, of course, God, he sees the, 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 the end of the story and he sees the, the outcome of all of the suffering and the evil in the world will be good. So he endures, but he endures it, he says what? With great pain. He endures it with great pain. Jesus wept. Jesus was, was raising Lazarus, but at the same time, he was in great pain. So how does this relate to what happened to Job? Simply, I, I want us to think about that when we suffer, God suffers. When we weep, God weeps. He is our friend. And St. Paul says we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And he, he says this based on his imitation of Christ. God suffers. God weeps. So let's go back to Job. Can we say then that the reason why Job cursed the day of his birth was because he did not want God to be pained by his circumstances? Job knew that he was being tested. Job knew that Satan was having a, a sort of a play date with Job. And Job not only was suffering, but he also suffered on behalf of knowing that God was suffering for his sake. He knew that this intense suffering that he was going through was also causing God to suffer. A beautiful um, reflection on this, an author wrote, at the same time, God also wept for him, that is for Job, and moreover was aggrieved for him. God was pained by his pain and hurt by his hurt. Did Job feel God's pain as well as how unbearable it was for God? Job did not want to bring any more grief upon God, nor did he want God to weep for him, much less did he want to see God pained by him. At this time, Job would have preferred to have never been born into the world of man. Job would have, never, would have preferred to have never been born into the world of man, would rather that he did not exist than to see God cry tears or feel pain for his sake. What an amazing sort of reflection that what if in our suffering, what if in our trial, instead of blaming God, instead of getting angry with God, what if we also felt pain for God, for the pain that he feels for us? I wonder if such a, 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 an attitude would, would bring consolation and grace and give us uh, relief in our suffering. It's just something that I came across that I wanted to share. So again, today in the gospel, Jesus tells us as his disciples, as his followers, we are his friends, but a friend sometimes is silent. A friend sometimes delays. But he responds, and when he responds, it's always for our good. And also when he responds, he also responds with his own tears and pain in his heart for what we are going through. May the Lord Jesus Christ always be glorified now and ever into the ages of ages. Amen.
Blessed are they.